0: This is episode 289 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support the show and access over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms when you join us as a patron at patreon.com slash that shakespeare life. It's Halloween this week, and we are celebrating here on That Shakespeare Life by talking about werewolves. In our episode today, we talk about real cases of werewolves from the 16th century. The stories are graphic in nature and could be disturbing for some listeners. As such, we recommend anyone listening in a classroom or where small ears might be present, preview the episode before listening. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel Blank, assistant professor at Durham University and author of Shakespeare and University Drama in Early Modern England. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life, with my friend Cassidy Cash. One of the things he does is he argues that this is a belief done by either deluded people who think they've seen werewolves or deluded people who think they've become werewolves and therefore this explains what they're doing. And he justifies this in very modern scientific terms. Essentially, he argues that the seed of a human soul is in the brain. Now, that was really debated at the time, but... See to the human soul was in the brain. And as he points out to his audience, you compare the size of a human's head and brain pan and you compare the size of a wolf's brain pan. There is no way a human could transform into a wolf
0: And now, here's Cassidy. Far before the time of Shakespeare, there was a prevalent belief in the creatures known as werewolves, or lycanthrope, as they are called in the ancient world. This belief saw a large increase by the 16th century, with people believing werewolves were humans capable of shape shifting into the form of a large and evil wolf desiring to consume other humans, and particularly children, by the light of a full moon. The legend of werewolves today is dismissed by the popular mindset and relegated to the halls of horror films, TV shows, and, of course, Halloween costumes. However, in Shakespeare's lifetime, there was not only an established belief in actual werewolves, but documented cases of real people convicted of being werewolves, like the Werewolf of Dole in 1573... Peter Stoop in 1589, and a Geneva man was convicted of killing 16 children when he had changed himself into a wolf on October 15th, 1580, when William Shakespeare was just 16 years old. Here today to share with us the history of werewolves in Shakespeare's England and details about some of the surviving documentation we have about real werewolf cases in Europe is our guest and author of Werewolves, Witches, and Wandering Spirits, Kay Edwards. Dr. Katherine Edwards is professor of history at the University of South Carolina. She has published widely in the history of daily life, folklore, and religious belief and practice in Europe from 1400 to 1700, and is the author of Werewolves, Witches, and Wandering Spirits, which she joins us today to discuss. She's also written multiple other books on folklore and the supernatural, and we've provided a link where you can learn more about Kay and see some of the other publications she's written in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Kay. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. So glad to have you here. This is an interesting topic, I think, given the number of cases where real people were convicted in a court of law of being werewolves. What was the legal criteria for evaluating whether or not someone was a werewolf?
1: It depended on where you were. If you're in England, there are certain criteria. If you're in France, there are others because there's so many different law codes in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries, there were pretty much no valid reasons you could find in English, English law to convict people for being a werewolf. In French and in the various laws in the Holy Roman Empire, it was many of the same things that would convict people for being a witch. And in fact, witchcraft, And werewolfism were often linked because the whole idea of being able to change your physical form. That being said, in many, many cases where people were accused of being able to change their physical form, at least the theologians or the theorists writing about it actually said that it was delusional, that that this is something that they had in their mind, Or that they, through their magic, might have been able to convince people that they were werewolves, but that they actually weren't doing a full transformation. That's what makes the few cases where they're convicted for being a full transformation werewolf so dramatic.
0: So they were essentially being convicted of sort of evil con artists at at that point. Uh, They felt like they could.
1: Yeah, not as much, I would say, con artists, because what they are oftentimes doing when they are doing this type of magic is they themselves are responding to what are very common beliefs and very common ways of exercising power at their time. So they're not con artists any more than, let's say, somebody who goes out and harvests, oh, I don't know, herbs at certain phases of the moon would be seen as con artists in that time. The big trick is how dangerous these things might be perceived as being. And that's where things like full physical transformation or can, you know, making people think they have full physical transformation is seen as dangerous.
0: In researching this episode, I wanted to see the people convicted of being werewolves as victims of societal superstition. However, in in many of the documented werewolf cases, the people involved are confessing to the crime. And in some instances, like there's a man in Geneva who killed 16 children by supposedly turning into a wolf in 1580. And he was actually caught in the act of cannibalism. But Kate, how do we explain... Cases of werewolves, when looking at the evidence, it it looks at face value like werewolves were real, or at least that those called werewolves were actual criminals, um, not actually wolves.
1: Part of it is you, and this is something in my classes on magic and witchcraft and such I always have to talk about, you have to break away from modern terms and modern uh, assumptions about how the world works. And basically, in this time period, kind of powers that are regarded as beyond those of an of a normal person, like I presume you and me, um, are perceived as just kind of being imminent in the world and accessible in the world and can influence things in the world. So when you have a question of somebody who, for example... You take the Geneva case where he's convicted on cannibalism. There are a lot of ways you could argue that, let's say, that person is like a mentally disturbed serial killer in the modern world. But the idea that he is behaving like a wolf, preying on kind of younger, more defenseless, smaller members of the community works as a perfectly good explanation. For a large part of society, because nature is believed to be that mutable and that, to use the term we would use, magical, things can happen that don't fall within a modern frame of reference. And they can happen that way for a wide variety of reasons. At least that's the idea of people at that time.
0: Previously on That Shakespeare Life, we've discussed cases of hypertrichosis, where the body is excessively covered in hair. And while some scholars have suggested this condition could be what causes convicted serial killers to also be accused of being werewolves, the cases of hypertrichosis we looked at on our show were people seen as curiosities, and they were actually put on display for entertainment, and they definitely were not seen as things to be feared, and they were specifically not accused of being werewolves, as I had expected they might have been. Kay, can you tell us about the medical community's response to werewolf cases? Was lycanthropy ever looked at as a disease considered to be transmissible or defined by a set of observable symptoms or even assigned certain treatments?
1: No, it's a good question. Um, Let me try and break it down. The question of how do you become one, if you will, how do you define one, and then how do you treat one? How do you become one is, I tend to think of it as the $5 million question. There isn't a consistent, coherent explanation for how some people are. They just kind of are. In part because, particularly if you're dealing with Central and Western Europe, there aren't actually a lot of werewolf cases. The whole idea of physical transformation into animals in this kind of way tends to be further like a Scandinavian idea and some Germanic and English in some cases. But even then, it's rare cases. So how do you become one? It's not really clear. Why, you know, what medically, if you will, might be wrong. The kind of catch-all explanation for these sort of things, particularly this sort of um, mass murder, is melancholy. If you're thinking of this in terms of it, melancholy, again, was a catch-all term Tied to ancient Greek and Roman forms of diagnosis that have been developed over centuries, that roughly equates to what we would think of as depression or some sort of repressive mental disturbance. There are a whole series of other illnesses in the modern world it could be equated to so it doesn't work as a as a modern medical diagnosis
0: so in in modern terms we've taken that melancholy and essentially broken it down into, into specificities a and a
1: whole bunch of different so it's an forms. umbrella
0: you should think of it definitely as an umbrella term for a, exactly. just a wide group of things
1: and, okay. and another you know reason that they would often describe somebody as being litanthropic is demonic possession or demonic obsession Essentially, the kind of devil made me do it sort of explanation, which sounds like a flip and a throwaway. But people, particularly in the 16th and 17th century, when there were these major lycanthropy trials, firmly believed the devil and devils in general were active presences in their world. So they actually did things immediately to people. So those could also be those would be very common reasons. And those would be given by the scientific community. And in fact, one of the interesting things uh, I find in talking about lycanthropy is how it gets integrated into this whole field of study of the kind of evil preternatural, that is things that are natural in this world, but beyond ordinary human understanding, that is basically led by demonology. And it's so you find little slices of information about things like werewolves in these 400, 500, 1000 page demonological treatises. In fact, one of my favorite lines about werewolves comes from one of these who was a um, kind of a member of the chief judicial court in Eastern France, in the Franche-Pontay area, where they were perceived to be just. Dozens of these, of course. And one of the things he does is he argues that this is a belief done by either deluded people who think they've seen werewolves or deluded people who think they've become werewolves and therefore this explains what they're doing. And he justifies this in very modern scientific terms. Essentially, he argues that the seed of a human soul is in the brain. Now, that was really debated at the time, but seed of the human soul was in the brain. And as he points out to his audience, you compare the size of a human's head and brain pan, and you compare the size of a wolf's brain pan, there is no way a human could transform into a wolf without losing some of its brain. Therefore, some of its soul And since humans cannot lose some of their soul, according to this person, scientifically, a human cannot physically transform into a wolf because they lose their soul because the brain pan is too small. That is one of my favorite explanations for why you can't have werewolves. It's such a great... It's such a
0: loaded look at the scientific perspective of the world right
1: there. I I just love it. My students always kind of crack up and shake their heads because I get a lot of science students in my magic and witchcraft class too. And they're just like, Wow.
0: You're talking about treatises on demonology. I think we have to bring up James the I of England. In his publication called Demonology, he described werewolves as... Victims of delusion induced by, quote, a natural superabundance of melancholic end quote. There you go. Yeah, exactly what you've been telling us. Now, Kay, his description sounds like it could be a case of psychopaths or a paranoid personality disorder or these other psychological diagnoses often given to serial killers today. But I I wonder if there was any analysis done on the cases from Shakespeare's Lifetime about werewolves to look at whether or not there were parallels with documented psychological conditions. I know they saw it all as melancholy, but have we looked at it since then to be able to identify these cases in modern terms?
1: People try to do that. I have a very strong reaction against that. Let me explain why. On a very basic level, people did not record the type of information that is used to get or to make modern um, medical diagnoses. Moreover, you know, clearly, we didn't have the type of laboratory testing and things like that. So what you often get when you read about this, and this gets done for early studies on various plagues that go around, it gets done when people are talking about the roots of ideas about vampires and things like this, that people basically project either a 20th century symptomology on people from the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, or they complain about how stupid people were at that time because they didn't take down the same type of information that a modern scientist might want, or they make very, very broad presuppositions, usually, I hate to say it, that reinforce their own ideas about what medical procedures are. Um, You get real medical doctors From the 21st century, looking at this, they kind of go, so I always very much argue we should try to take things in their own terms and to try to understand how medical practices at that time actually are shown in the way they talk about these various cases. And when it comes to cases of lycanthropy, they're seen as delusional in this idea of melancholy. Or they're seen as demonic. And both of those are regarded as just as scientific at that time as anything that we could come up with linking it to, you know, oh, I don't know, some sort of, you know, psychopathy, um, some sort of sociopath, anything like that.
0: In 1573, Giles Garnier was convicted of being a werewolf and even became known as the werewolf of Dole. Okay, this moniker sounds like names we give serial killers today. Was Giles Garnier a serial killer? And what can you tell us about his case?
1: Um, Was Garnier a serial killer? Not in the sense if you really study how modern serial killers work. And the psychology involved in things like that. Um, one of the most fascinating things I ever did is the person who was in charge of the FBI serial killer, I don't know what you want to call it, branch office, et cetera, spoke at the uh, school I first worked at. And it was fascinating to compare his statements about how this works and how they study it versus cases like this. Guile Garnier was a mass murderer, as far as we can tell. Guil Garnier, um, I'll just call him Guile because it's easier for um, English speakers, was a sensational case in a place that very much felt that werewolves or wolves in general were all over. But the thing you have to understand about the franche Comté at that time is it is an area where there are an enormous number of religious differences. It was a migration area for Protestants going through to Geneva, but it was also an ultra-Catholic area. It was an area where the government was very, very much disputed. It was almost semi-autonomous region. It wasn't a particularly wealthy region. It was very much tied to kind of basic subsistence agriculture and kind of transhumanists. So you've got, you know, various people doing cattle or sheep or goats traveling all over the mountains, the Jura mountains, that were to the east of the province. Wolves were a real issue, whether they were werewolves or regular ordinary wolves. <laughs> so there's, you know, dieu Garnier, who, as far as we can tell, was to some degree mentally deficient. And they said this at the time, that's actually their term for it. We don't know exactly in what way he was not thinking in the same way or at the same level of people from the time. But when he was first brought in and put into a monastery kind of for the protection of society, it was actually considered a kind of generous thing because it was for his protection as well, because they truly weren't sure what he was going to do. He didn't really seem to comprehend what was going on. And his behavior, his adoption of a wolf persona, the prevalence of wolves in the area, even though they don't behave that way, wolves are far from mass murderers, and all tied in to kind of popular conceptions about this sort of thing.
0: That was my next question. Actually, was about the presence of actual wolves. Is that is there a consistency to that where we see the werewolf stories coming up or people being accused of this? Are they in areas where wolves are native to those areas and actual animal wolves were also attacking people to provide fuel to some of these beliefs about werewolves?
1: Yes and no. Okay. Certainly, they usually tend to happen in areas where wolves and where are bears in particular, any sort of where animal that people transform into are in areas where that animal is prevalent. And in the case of werewolves in particular, they were in areas, usually mountainous areas, are where you're going to get a lot of these accusations. Further in kind of eastern provinces, so moreover in the eastern parts of the Holy Roman Empire, for example, yeah, where there were wolves, you were much more likely to get werewolf stories. Did wolves take children, livestock, whatever? As far as we can tell, yes, they did. Was there a kind of conscious campaign? Is this something that wolves do with any of the sort of focus that you see in werewolf stories? Absolutely not. Anybody who kind of studies the modern kind of, what do you want to say, behavioral practice of wolves. What happens is the image of the kind of alpha predator in the area. Gets projected onto a human being who is seen as embodying the kind of worst of the traits, the traits that human society is projecting onto that predator. It becomes a, a a kind of almost synonymous thing. And as far as we can tell, the people who who are accused of being a werewolf and who accept this identity, in fact, even self-identify, in part are doing it because they've been told their behavior is this way, but also because it represents a certain power.
0: Well, the last case of werewolves that I want to bring up and get your opinion on today is one of the most famous werewolf trials in history that actually happened during Shakespeare's lifetime. It happened in 1589, and that's the case of Peter Stube, also spelled Stup. So I'm not sure about my pronunciation there, but can you tell us why his story was so famous?
1: At, at a basic level, I, I hate to put it this way, it happened to get noticed and translated. The Guy Garnier case, I mean, as a case of comparison, was just as horrific, if you will, of a mass murder. But because of the location of the Peter Stoop case, there was, it was in an area where there were greater trading networks. It was an incredibly sensationalistic case. And printers printed what they thought would make money. And there was a huge international trading network in these kind of short pamphlets that talk about really sensational and gross cases. I mean, I use a lot of those when I studied beliefs about ghosts, for example. And so the Peter Stoop case could very quickly be translated and find a market in, you know, German, English, French, the Dutch. There were all sorts of markets for this. And these would vary. You know, they had peddlers with backpacks. They sent chests across the English Channel. And once these things get translated and distributed, there was no copyright protection. So if printers thought they had a market, they'd go buy one from their neighbor and take it and reprint it. And there you go. So cases like this could get really, if they were sensational or not, they could really appeal to a mass
0: market very, very quickly. Summarize his story for us and tell us why was it so fantastic?
1: What he was, was Peter Stueck was a German farmer who, in the late 1580s, is accused of killing, gosh, is it somewhere 25? 40, I'm, I'm probably mixing the number up. I hate to say it with Guy Garnier. That is, you know, bringing in these children into his town in a small town on, in, near Cologne. And Cologne was, again, a major trading center in northwestern Germany on the Rhine. What Peter Stube apparently seems to do is to kind of keep, you know, in the course of his uh, being out in the farm work and taking care of his crops and his livestock, he doesn't just seem to slaughter his own livestock aimlessly, but the accusations are that Peter Stube craves not only the blood of livestock, and the blood of livestock would have been considered a completely legitimate thing, to do but he craves the blood of men women and children and in fact as the accusations kind of take off in the you know in it's 1588 something like that when he's an older um, gentleman he is even accused of having killed his son to take the feast on the son's blood the thing with the Peter Stew case, I mean, he is eventually convicted. He's convicted of, uh, of now that I remember and go through this again, of um, uh, killing approximately 20 people, um, most of whom were children, but there were also women. And what made this even more kind of grotesque is some of the women were pregnant, and he was accused of not only killing them, but tearing the fetus out of their stomachs. This kind of insatiable craving was described in the trial records as kind of animal like. The trick with it, however, and the way part of why the Peter Stude case was so sensationalized is that a lot of the things that Stude is accused of, aside from this kind of werewolf, this animal wolf like behavior, is he very much talks about a lot of the things in the way a witch would have at the top. So, for example, his power to transform into a wolf, which gave him the strength to do all of these horrible things, according to Stube's own testimony, was given to him by the devil. He, is, you know, describes, again, in his t- own testimony, how he meets with the devil, how he has sex with a succubus sent to him by the devil, how he had attended Sabbaths, that is mass meetings of witches or people who were servants of the devil from the time he himself was in his early teens. It kind of goes on and on like this. His activities really fit into what scholars of witchcraft talk about the collective, what do I want to say? the the collective belief in witchcraft, the whole series of components that were involved that made people be accused of witchcraft and made witchcraft be seen as such a horrible crime. So in this case, you know, Peter Stone or Stube, it depends on uh, what of the many spellings you want to use. Part of why he was so sensational is his claim to be be, that he did these crimes as a werewolf. But part of also why he was so dangerous and why he was executed and why his case became such a sensation is he fits all the worst patterns that witches were believed to fit at that time. So he kind of combines both parts and that is part of what makes him such a kind of influential and well-known case.
0: His story was fascinating to me because I think when we look back at these trials, it's easy to think that the 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 government or the powers that be were putting these attributes onto people unnecessarily. I know that that comes up a lot with the witch trials. There are innocent women who are accused of being witches when they, when they weren't and they weren't claiming to be, but they were executed as them anyway. And I think what's surprising about the story of Peter Stoop is that he was claiming to be all of the personally testifying to and claiming to be behaving as all of the things that were, as you say, established definitions for this kind of evil behavior. And so it, it is an interesting example that at least not, not all of the werewolf or witch cases were instances of injustice on the part of the police, I guess, as a, as a way to modernize that. It's hard
1: because you have to know perspective. very much how the trials worked in that area. And in a lot of trial cases, you know, somebody could be questioned and questioned involved versions of torture to if there were some sort of convincing proof that, you know, you didn't just torture them for torture's sake. You had to have had a series of testimony, a a set of evidence before it was considered legitimate. But one of the challenges when you've got small town guys like Peter Stew is you could very easily have the person in charge of the court at least the initial court, not be somebody trained in law. So you don't know how many of these confessions were obtained just him being very straightforward about it versus were obtained through some really kind of dramatic torture. But in all cases, you had to confirm your testimony without torture. Otherwise, because they weren't stupid. They recognized that, you know, people might do, you know, confess to crazy things just because they wanted the torture to stop. And what it appears you have with the Peter Stoop case is somebody who, you know, once he has been questioned, and we don't know exactly to what extent he was questioned, if you will, somebody who kind of fully embraced it. You know, now, I mean, and starts talking about You know, the number of people he did, the magical belts, the connections with the devil. The trick is how much these original questions were prompted by the trial officials and how much of them were actually something that Stube adopted. And we honestly just don't know that. That's the case for a lot of these sensationalistic trials.
0: So many questions. Always, always more questions, (laughs) which which leads me to wonder, where should we start? As a topic expert here, what would you suggest? If we're new to this part of history and we're not sure where to go to explore it further, what are some of the books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more?
1: I would recommend somewhat, as I think we've both talked about before, start reading some of the trials. And one of the really fun things is that there's a figure called Montague Summers, who is, if you know about his life, he's eccentric as all get out. But he did a great job translating a lot of these trials, because many of these trial records are in Latin, so they're not, again, accessible to modern people. But Montague Summers, a century ago, translated an enormous number of these If you want some really good modern English language analysis of how this works, there's a scholar who works for the Folklore Society in England now called Caroline Oates, who has done both books and articles on this topic. I have worked on werewolves because I tend to work on weird stuff uh, in general. That's my—you know—seems to be where I've gone in my career. My work specifically is more on ghosts and other figures of the supernatural. But if you look in the collection that I have, that I know you know of, um, the werewolves, witches, and wandering spirits, there are several famous werewolf cases talked about in there. And again, they're in English, they're kind of immediate, and, you know, tangible for modern audiences. One of the real challenges you have, and this is part of why I'm thinking of some books that I'm going, no, I can't recommend this. No, I can't recommend this. Because there are so many sources want to fit it into modern psychological or medical diagnoses. And they just aren't aware of kind of how people think in the folklore of this period. The frustrating part is some of the best work on this is in French and German. And so, yeah. All of
0: our listeners who can read French and German, you know.
1: There is one French scholar named Claude LeCoutou. It's L E C O U T. E-U-X. I have to kind of close my eyes to think of my French spelling here. He has had some of his work translated. And if you're just interested in this kind of folklore in general, not even so much the werewolf, but were-beings, medieval ideas about fairies, things like that. He's one of the leading French scholars on this. And like I say, some of his material has been translated into English. And it's, it's great because it's a lot of small stories.
0: Those are fascinating resources. I know I read French, so I'm excited to go check out at least some of the French resources. But having the translation is helpful, too, because sometimes you just need it in your native language. Oh All of these resources we will link to in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you hang on um, at the end for the link for where to find those. And they'll be easy to find. And you can just click and go directly to the right thing. Now, okay, we ask everyone this next question here on that Shakespeare life. And that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those.
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm kind of sitting here going, should I come up with a, an academic book? Or should I come up with a a book that I would be reading over and over again. And I, I'll do the book I read over and over again, because it goes both popular and ties into my academic. Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's Good Omens.
0: Oh, there that's a great one. Yeah, and
1: not, not the BBC thing. The BBC thing was fine. But the more you know about... This type of ideas, ideas about apocalypticism, ideas, um, you know, about kind of British culture, ideas about the supernatural, the more you will get a kick out of that book.
0: So it only enhances the experience, having having listened to the show.
1: (laughs) I love this stuff. Then again, I'm a fan of both of those. And so when they wrote together, it was kind of thank you. Uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's an excellent choice for your deserted island. Absolutely. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about?
1: Well, actually, what I've been working on for a while, and the werewolf stuff came out of it, I've been working on a history of European beliefs and ghosts from the Black Death. so that about... 1300, 1350 to the Enlightenment, so the early 1700s. My current project is sitting on my desk. It's about 950 pages that I have to edit down. Uh, But it is European-wide, and I've been working on that. I'm also finishing up a collection that I'm editing of about 20 articles by scholars from all over the world, actually, on beliefs about the devil and devils in general. In Europe from about 1100 to 1700. This is why I joke I work on weird stuff. One of my <laughs> goodest friends calls me the ghost lady by now, who would have, I never, ever would have expected this in graduate school.
0: <laughs> the, the things they don't tell you in college, right? <laughs> oh well,
1: I mean, no, I mean, I was in graduate school. One of those people firmly convinced that this stuff isn't real history. And now I'm like, and I have made my career. And we've built a called.
0: whole career on it. I think that's <laughs> fabulous. Kay Edwards. Um, thank you so much for coming here today and sharing with us a slice of this incredible, fun, weird, and ghostly history. I have really <laughs> enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you would like to see some visual history that goes along with the topic we're talking about today, including some woodcuts of Peter Stoop and some of the other werewolf cases that we talked about today, along with some of the court documents and even some other archival research that we've packed together that coordinates with the werewolf history you're learning about today, then please check out the show notes. You can find links to all of these bonus history extras, as well as direct links to the resources that Kay recommends you use if you want to learn more. That way, you don't have to go searching the internet to try and find these obscure references because we'll have direct links to them right from the show notes. Find all of these things at com slash episode 289. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP289. Now, if you like walking around through the 16th and 17th century and exploring what the court cases, supernatural beliefs, and the inside of a playhouse were really like for the life of William Shakespeare, then you will really enjoy joining us as a patron. Over on Patreon, there are over 150 additional episodes of our show available in the back catalog, and you can listen to as many as you want from the patrons-only RSS feed. In addition to our back catalog, there's also other benefits available for patrons, including bonus episodes we only share with our patrons, along with a video library of documentaries, animated versions of the play, and so much more. There's even classroom resources like worksheets, lesson plans, and other bonuses available there. Find all of the good stuff at patreon.com slash that life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Happy Halloween from all of us here at That Shakespeare Life. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life.